This is another iRaw podcast. Every one of those millions of birds is grabbed by the feet and is pecking and biting and scratching and trying to get away. Welcome back to The Animal Turns. This is Season 2, Episode 9. As you know, in this season, we're focused in on the theme of animals and experience. And so far, it's been great. Uh, I've I don't know about you, but I've definitely learned a great deal about a variety of concepts that I could use to not only better do research, but to better think through some of my relationships with animals and some of the ways in which we can know or think about those relationships. But while many of the interviewees and myself have hinted at some of the problematic and oppressive relationships humans have with animals, uh, oftentimes thinking about factory farms... I haven't yet had an episode that tries to understand what are those experiences of the animals in those places? What does it mean to experience life in a factory farm? I reached out to Patrice Jones, uh, who is the co-founder of Vine Sanctuary, an LGBTQ-led farm animal refuge that works for social and environmental justice as well as animal liberation. And I reached out to Patrice and she suggested the concept of survivor. And as you'll hear throughout this episode, survivor is a really important concept for disrupting the ways in which we think about animals, uh, in terms of thinking about the amount of agency they have and thinking about the variety of experiences that different animals have, as well as thinking about the structures and the practices that get some animals, many animals, into experiences that are not enjoyable into experiences that are very problematic and very oppressive such as those experienced by animals in factory farms. Now Patrice Jones is a former tenant organizer and anti-racist educator with more than 40 years of activist experience. She has taught college and university courses in the theory and praxis of social change activism And as an eco-feminist scholar, Patrice lectures and publishes worldwide on the interconnections among human, animal, and ecological matters. And you'll hear throughout this episode that Patrice interweaves a whole bunch of interconnected challenges and issues that we should be thinking through when trying to understand animals' experiences in factory farms. Hi, Patrice. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Claudia. It's, uh, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Uh, I was thinking a fair bit about what I should do the ninth episode on, because uh, the ninth episode is the, the last interview, and then the tenth episode is kind of a, a grad review where we, we think about all the different ideas that have emerged in the season. And, um, you know, a scandal broke here in Ontario. The gag laws have just been implemented, and Animal Justice recently did an expose of a of a pig farm in Ontario. And I realized that an experience or set of experiences that animals have that was sorely missing from season two is kind of discussing animals that are caught up in our food networks. Uh, I think a lot of people have uh, hinted at it um, and we've, we've certainly discussed it in several episodes, but not really focused on what animal experiences are like in those settings. And I can't think of a better person to have on the show to kind of unpack uh, what these animals' lives could be like. Uh, but before we get into that, I first wanted to find out about you and how you came to know animals and make animals an important part of your life and your scholarship. Well, that's both easy and hard to answer. So I'll just give the easy answer. 
there came a time a little over 20 years ago uh, when I was working on what was then my dissertation on the psychohistory of whiteness. Um, I was interested in understanding how it came to be that uh, this subset of people, this subset of humans came to consider themselves to be both separate from and superior to all of the other humans on earth. And Mm -hmm. in working on that from within uh, an intersectional feminist perspective, so I was also interested in gender and other social constructs and how they factored in, to make a very, very long story short, I figured out that I couldn't begin to adequately answer that question unless I was also prepared to answer how it came to be that humans considered themselves to be uh, both separate from and superior to all of the other animals. So that was going on for me intellectually at about the same time that my former partner uh, and still very close friend, Miriam Jones, and I were receiving in the mail as a result of some donations that we had made, handouts and brochures and newsletters from various animal advocacy organizations, which were teaching us some very uncomfortable things about the experiences of animals uh, caught up in human systems, including the food system. And so that was prompting me to begin the process of going vegan. I was already vegetarian and had been since I was a teenager, but the things that I was learning uh, were provoking me to make a further change. And then in the midst of all of that sort of emotional and um, intellectual Uh, upheaval, Miriam and I moved to the part of the country in the United States where factory farming of chickens was invented and perfected. We didn't realize that was what we were doing. We knew we were moving to a rural area, but we were imagining uh, fields rather than um, factories, animal factories. And so within a month of moving there, Uh, This was in uh, rural Maryland on the Delmarva Peninsula, where they kill and cut up more than a million chickens every day. We drove past a chicken in a ditch who had escaped somehow. And first we cheered her. And then we realized that it was winter. And if we just left her there, she would die. So we brought her home. And she later turned out to be a he. And that's how what was then called the Eastern Shore Sanctuary and is now Vine Sanctuary was started. 20 years later, uh, there are more than 700 animals living here at the sanctuary, which is now in, in, in rural Vermont. Um, that's an incredible journey uh, of, of so much. Uh, you know, you brought up intersectionality right at the beginning of your discussion there and it was actually a journey for me. Feminism, in a weird way, I don't know why I'm saying weird, also took me to veganism because uh, I think when I when I started to learn, you know, some concepts in gender studies like intersectionality and questioning everyday 
things, the, the, the everyday, the taken for granted, slowly that started to work its way to thinking about what was on my plate and questioning, you know, the decisions I, of what I do every day. Um, so it's, it's interesting how these different isms are, are connected. And this is something that you've done a fair bit of, of work on and, and speak about is how feminism is connected to a variety of different axes of activism. Uh, do you find that the work of advocates who work on animal-related matters intertwines with these other I don't know, social movements? Do I think that the work does or do I think that the problems are related? Because those are actually two that, different questions. I guess let's let's start with the problems. Do you think the problems are interconnected? Oh, of course. How could they not be? Everything uh, that happens happens within social and material ecologies. It's not as if any of the things that we do to animals are done in some vacuum-sealed room, all of the other forces uh, that influence human behavior are absent, right? Mm. Mm. So, so like, I know one that you've spoken about previously, uh, is it called re- reprocentrism? Oh, yeah. Am I saying yes. it correctly? Yeah, reprocentrism. Could you, could you explain, could you explain how, because I think that example, I, I listened to you giving a lecture and that really brings forward some of how gender and, you know, expectations about reproduction kind of bring together gender and species in a, in a really illuminating way. Well, sure. I can, I can, I can talk about that in particular. Um, but I hope I wasn't being too terse earlier. I guess I was just trying to make strange the idea that um, how we treat animals uh, could be uh, something that is apart from everything else. Mm-hmm. And and why I want to make that strange is because I spent a lot of my life as a social justice activist who is also vegetarian and vegetarian due to sympathy for animals, who during all of these years of insisting that we can't understand race without also understanding gender. We can't understand gender without understand, also understanding race. We can't understand homophobia without reference to both race and gender. We can't understand class without thinking about race and gender. And yet I thought of my vegetarianism as some uh, separate personal preference, even though we feminists say the personal is political, everything's political, all of our choices are political. Um, And I think that an awful lot of people continue to walk around behaving as if the ways that humans treat animals uh, occur on some plane, some separate plane, which is not um, connected to anything else. And that's, I, I want to make that assumption strange. So it, it's, 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 I'm happy to, to explain some of the connections, but I really think uh, that if we're asking questions, we should be asking these people who say that they aren't connected, how that possibly could be. That's so important. I mean, it cuts to the whole idea that humans, as you were speaking about earlier, uh, and what your, your thesis was looking at, this whole idea that 
and in particular certain subset of humans, believe that they are separate from and superior to everything else. And that, yeah, you mentioned ecology there, you know, how we tend to think of cities as somehow being outside of nature. Just in common talking, we'll say, oh, I'm going, you know, that the, the city, it's city and nature, city and countryside. We create all of these divisions where human spaces and human beings are somehow seen as separate from uh, absolutely everything else. So I really appreciate the desire to make that strange. It, it is strange trying to think of ourselves as being different from all of that. But I think conceptually it does it does become maybe important to pry apart how these different, uh, I guess, power relationships work, right? The ways in which um, sexism has manifested has, while certainly related to and shaped by racism, is also distinct in some of the ways it operates. Yes, of course. But it also makes it really hard. So I think intersectionality is such a powerful concept for for complicating what we take to be as kind of neat categories of of being and of practice. But how, yeah, like dealing with that messiness is really hard, but maybe it's actually embracing that messiness, as you're suggesting. Well, I think it's about seeing relationships. And so... I mean, sure, we we can we can we can see that it becomes uh, it can can, be, can become complex if that's what you mean by messiness. But I'm um, I'm reminded of a quote that I didn't choose for this, but I'll go ahead and say it now. Um, I learned a lot from Angela Davis, and so she says that the radical impulse of feminist analysis is precisely to think about disparate categories together to think across disciplinary borders, to think across categorical distinctions, unquote. To me, this is, um, she refers to feminism as a, as a conceptual tool and, and intersectionality or uh, what we used to call the interconnectedness of oppressions. That's also a conceptual tool. It's a way, it's a method of, of searching out relationships among what might seem to be disparate entities or processes and and then following those relationships uh, so that we can begin to see the systems that they create. Mm. And how, how do you see this way of thinking um, as helping us to better understand the experiences of of animals and I, and I guess in particular of animals that are caught up in our, our food systems and our clothing systems that we that we treat poorly how do we start to enable this kind of thinking to better understand their experiences well I think what the kind of thinking that I was talking about does is it helps us to understand uh, how they got into those situations and it also helps us understand what we might need to do to dismantle the systems of oppression in which they are entangled. In terms of helping us to understand their experiences, I think really uh, this way of thinking simply would spur us to, uh, to set aside our hubris and in order to begin to imagine uh, what their experiences might be. And that requires a process of empathy, which is a little bit more complicated than 
people think because it's not a matter of saying, well, you know, what would I think if I was caught up in this situation? Or what would I feel if I was caught up in this situation? Of course, that's a piece. Um, mm-hmm. That's a starting point. But you're not a bird. And so a piece of trying to imagine what the um, experience of a hen uh, caught up in um, the reprocentric nightmare of an egg factory is experiencing also requires you to uh, think set, think that you're not the center, but make her the center of your imagination for that moment and what what the experience might be for her, uh, for an animal such as she is. You know, so for example, uh, for birds, um, uh, we can only guess what it would feel like uh, to not be able to spread their wings. We don't have wings, but we can enter in to a process of imagination uh, if we are willing uh, to sort of set aside, at the, uh, on the one hand, see our connectedness, understand that we have basically the same, the same basic biochemistry of emotion. Um, and so frustration, fear, uh, probably uh, the, the jolt of terror probably feels pretty similar, but... And so it's a sort of a double vision of, on the one hand, seeing the things that are similar, but also being aware of the differences and trying to imagine what things might feel like to them within who they are. I love that because you're both embracing how we can use our human way of being and of experiencing the world to try and get some empathy, to try and relate to and understand it, but to a point, to a point to also stop and realize that animals often have different senses and different body parts that might allow them to experience the world in, well, not might, but do allow them to experience the world in different ways, uh, you know, different ways to suffer, but different ways to have joy as well. Uh, and and that to imagine, to try and imagine that is, is a really powerful tool. Uh, earlier on, you also mentioned how, you know, this line of thinking and intersectional analysis is important for us understanding how some of these experiences came to be, how you find a hen in a space where she can't spread her wings or you find, uh, you know, you find a a chicken on the side of the road who's freezing in the middle of winter. Uh, And I think that using this way of understanding to understand how those experiences were even created in the first place is really significant and important. And I know when I first reached out to you for this interview, I'd come to you with a whole bunch of I guess negative leaning concepts. I said, oh, should we talk about oppression or you know capitalism or violence? I was quite shocked by the documentary I'd seen, and you know anyone who's seen some of the footage from inside slaughterhouses knows that it's pretty traumatic footage to watch. But then to maybe use some of the imagination you're speaking of here and to just think about what it must be like to experience. And I'd come to you with some of these concepts, but they are fairly negative leaning. And you responded to me saying, why don't we speak about the concept survivor instead? And it hadn't even crossed my mind, really, to, to think of that word. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about the, the word or the concept survivor and why you think it's so important to understanding animals' experiences? Absolutely. I do think, uh, before I do that, though, I will say, I do think it's, it's really important to 
try to imagine yourself into uh, some of these truly horrific circumstances uh, into which humans have put other than human animals. Mm. Uh, uh, Particularly if you're uh, someone who has not yet divested yourself from, or at least tried to divest yourself from um, complicity in those systems. Um, I I think it's very important. Um, It was a little shocking to me just earlier in this uh, podcast when you said, well, you haven't really talked that much about experiences of animals in the food system. And I'm like, what? Mm. Uh, How, how could that be? That's like, like that is the, the most common relationship that humans have with other animals is um, eating them. Mm-hmm. Well, if you eat an animal, that's a relationship, right? It's a relationship of domination and control, um, um, much of which you've outsourced uh, to other people. And we could talk about capitalism there. But that's that's the relationship uh, that people have with non-human animals most frequently, for many people, three times a day, yeah? Um, and so the idea that an animal studies podcast series focused on the experiences of animals hasn't gotten around to thinking about the animals in the food system yet. That's, that's really troubling to me. And so um, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I absolutely want to talk about uh, survivors and the concept of survivorship, but that's really important presuming that people who think about survivors are also thinking about the suffering. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I will say that throughout the, the seasons, we have had concepts, you know, that have ranged everything from phenomenology to to art. And in every single episode, animal suffering has um, has come up. But I haven't actually had an episode that has dedicated, I think, substantial time to understanding what those experiences entail. Uh, so, and, and I think it's really important that we have this conversation and I'm very grateful that you are, are here to help us with it. Right. Uh, right. So, so it's just, it's just important. I'm talking more to the field of animal studies than I'm talking to you personally mm-hmm. at this moment. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's super important to be aware um, and to at least try to imagine yourself into, if you're at all interested in phenomenology or the like, the experiences of hens mm-hmm. in battery cages where where these, you know, uh, where they are crammed together. Uh, and yes, they're social birds, but they don't want to be crammed together that closely and never able to get away from each other. And you could go on and on. I think it's essential to 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 try to imagine uh, what it what a, what a bird experiences in that situation. A bird mm-hmm. 
in that situation. Or if we think about the dairy system and we think about, talk about intersections uh, with the subordination of, of female persons uh, for all these years, for all these millennia, um, in order to uh, control and profit from their reproductive capabilities. And then we think about cows and we think about what the experience would be of being forcibly impregnated, what the experience would be of carrying a calf to term and having that calf taken from you within the first 24 hours and having your body uh, continue to make the milk for the calf and had be hooked up to machines that suck the milk all the while you're mourning your calf. Like it's just really mm. essential if you're going to approach animal studies of any kind uh, with any sort of authenticity, with any sort of good faith to, uh, to, uh, to imagine uh, those things. Um, yeah, it's, it is so important. Like you said, it's, it's one of the relationships we engage in on a daily basis. Uh, you know, you just need to walk in a supermarket or down a street to see numerous animals uh, in a variety of contexts, whether it's in clothing or in food uh, or medicines, to say that these are certainly a relationship that are a set of relationships that are deserving of attention, not just deserving, but uh, required attention at some point we have a responsibility certainly to these these animals who we've been in relationships with for thousands and thousands of years so yeah, yeah. thank you for, for yeah. bringing that up um the now within within animal advocacy and i and and possibly also within the subset of animal studies that um that takes animals used for food as uh serious matter of responsibility and thinking, there can be a, a tendency to um, dwell on the suffering and perhaps even reduce animals to sort of avatars of suffering. And so, as I mentioned, I came to uh, both animal advocacy and animal studies uh, from within uh, social justice, or what's now called social justice. We didn't use that phrase in the 70s when I got started. And so uh, it's very common within social justice to uh, reject the rhetoric of victimhood in, 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 in favor of a rhetoric of survivorship. So, for example, when I was an AIDS activist, uh, people with AIDS... Uh, <laughs> came up with the phrase people with AIDS in order to get people to stop calling them AIDS victims because there was something reductive um, and disempowering about being thought of as an AIDS victim. Hmm? And within feminism, we're, we don't say battered women, we say survivors of domestic violence. We don't say rape victims, we say survivors of sexual assault. And we use the word survivors to talk about those who have survived any number of kinds of violation, whether it be uh, police violence or uh, houselessness or whatever the case may be. Um, and, and the reason for this is, uh, and it's similar to something uh, that we talk about within disability rights, where people are particularly keen uh, not to be reduced to their suffering. If we want to think about this sort of more academically, then I would uh, I would suggest 
two ecofeminist scholars, uh, both late, unfortunately, Marty Keel, K-H-E-E-L, and Val Plumwood, both of whom were very careful to highlight the agency and strength of non-human animals. So Marty Keel wrote a really important paper, which you can actually read online because it's in, you know, a PDF in various places online. If you just Google Marty Keel, uh, heroic ethic, it's, he wrote a chapter called from heroic to holistic ethics, the ecofeminist challenge. And the idea here, uh, she was, she was here talking more about the, um, Oh, the heroic, we're going to save the planet uh, mentality as though the planet were some damsel in distress rather than, in fact, the, um, the organism that makes our own life possible and upon which we depend, upon which we are dependent. Mm-hmm. Um, and this heroic ethic like turns the humans into the center of the story as well as the ones with agency uh, and the ones who are su- implicitly superior. And, but of course, if we think about uh, what the planet needs saving from, it's us, right? Mm. Um, the planet's perfectly fine without us. Um, <laughs> non-human animals, perfectly fine without us. All mm. of the things that we need to do involve getting people to not do harmful things. And the idea is that probably adopting the mantle of the hero, which is just tightly wrapped within the um, hegemonic way of thinking that has caused all the problems, um, is probably not the way to go. It's, it's, it's super important uh, n- to recognize the agency of non-human animals and the planet and to recognize the systems uh, the networks, because um, passivity is another piece of this, right? The humans are the active savers and the, and, the, and the planet or the animals are the passive victims who we are going to heroically um, and very masculinely save. A, a, a care ethic uh, is a little bit different. A care ethic looks at our relationships and attempts to repair our relationships um, and recognizes uh, the agency and the strength of others. So taking all of that and thinking about then the experiences of um, animals ensnared in the food system, then I want us to recognize uh, that the reason working in a slaughterhouse is the most dangerous occupation is because animals fight back. They fight back every day. Every one of those millions of birds is grabbed by the feet and is pecking and biting and scratching and trying to get away. Um, that is important to to drive home. And, and just so that I, I fully understand, what you're saying here is victim is a, a concept that makes the person – and by person, I mean both animal or human. Um, the person that you're talking about sound passive, as though they're not doing anything, that as though they have no control or say in what's happening, whereas the concept of survivor 
uh, affords them with more agency, even if it's only a little room to to work. Even even a chicken that's being strung up in a factory farm well, is practicing agency, right. but to a much smaller extent. Right, and trying to be a survivor. I mean, there are mm-hmm. victims. When they end up dead, they're victims. But it's important. Um, and, and, and so we're not, we're not trying to erase the violence. We're not trying to say that folks who have been harmed in various ways have not been victimized. Yes, they have been victimized, um, but they are not, but we don't want to reduce them to victims because there we have, mm-hmm. there we have both, as you say, a reduction of the agency, uh, a sort of a fem, making them into a feminized, feminine, passive, uh, Blob, and so there's also like this this reduction, this um, lack of dignity, um, because they become what was done to them, at least in our minds, right? Then you know they're nothing other than their victimhood. Whereas survivor, for those who do survive, then uh, then allows for not only agency uh, but also strength and creativity and individuality. Mm-hmm. Dignity. Could you, could you maybe give us a sense of, of, so you started bringing up chickens and how they experience some of these these conditions. Could you maybe give us a sense of what is the context like? And let's 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 focus on 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 chickens. And we can maybe speak about cows in a, in a little while, or any other animal you, you you choose. But could you maybe tell us a little bit about? What do these experiences entail? Based on your years and years of experience with chickens and the types of personalities they are and, and who they are, you probably better than anyone would maybe be able to give us a sense or a story about what is the system that they're involved in when they are caught up in a food network and what would a day look like for them potentially? And then maybe we can talk a bit about how that's so different to what a day for them looks like uh, at the sanctuary. Okay. So 99% of all of the uh, chickens uh, who are killed and made into meat are raised on, on, on raised is the wrong word. Uh, live their short for shortened lives uh, in factory farms. Uh, they are typically uh, typically what you'll see on a factory farm is uh, a number of long, low, windowless buildings, uh, each of which has like a sand floor, and and each of which include encloses maybe forty thousand sure. uh, birds. Could be ten thousand. I've seen seen some with ten thousand apiece. Um, but then you'll see, like, uh, you know, each farm will have, like, six of them. So it'll be, like, 60,000 birds. Um, they are hatched first in hatcheries. And so uh, they awaken under artificial light rather than under their mother's wings. Uh, and they Im- immediately are looking for their mother, but there is no mother. Um, and so instead, what they have are thousands of other little chicks, all of whom are also looking for their mother. Um, And all of these motherless chicks are then taken, usually in converted school buses, 
the trucks are used as well to to the factory farm from the hatchery to the factory farm where they will be in this damp dark windowless building uh for four to six weeks during that time they grow uh super fast uh, and so probably they're, ex- and actually we know from some, some industry tests, they, they are experiencing pain uh, from this, uh, from this fast growth. And, and there are feeders on the ground uh, with uh, mash that's provided by the company. And at least in the places that I've been into, the feeders are set so that they um, they they're on a like a lift and they go higher and higher every day. So any bird who doesn't grow fast enough to you know be worth their while uh, eventually can't reach the feeder and dies of starvation. What? Um, and so the the so-called farmer walks through once a day pulling out the dead birds, and that's really only, the only care so to speak, that happens. And the birds, they're highly sociable. I have many, many times uh, rescued these birds right after the so-called chicken catchers come to get them. I'll talk about that in a minute. And they're, it's really heartrending to see, um, you know, they're very close to each other. They're, you know, they've been raised as this, you know, giant motherless flock, um, and so they, they, they try their best to take comfort from one another, put their head under each other's wings, put their wing over somebody else. They're doing their best, um, having not, you know, ever had a mother or an experience of mothering to provide mothering to each other. And uh, generally nothing is done uh, about the waste during the weeks that they're in there. So what happens is the ammonia builds up um, and many birds go blind from the from the accumulated fumes and so you've got these big white birds who are walking around on their achy joints but not really walking around because uh as they grow they take up more and more space so by the time it's it's time for the chicken catchers to come there's not really room uh, you know there are ten thousand birds in this shed and so then what happens usually at night because they like to get them when they're asleep because they're a little they fight back a little less adeptly. They run away a little less quickly if they surprise them in their sleep. The uh, What will happen is suddenly the door will go up and the bright lights of the truck will shine in. And uh, chicken catchers, who are typically uh, contract workers who are paid by their crew chiefs rather than by the major companies um, and who often are undocumented workers or others who really have no other choice other than to take this the worst job in the industry. Um, And they rush in and they are paid per hundred birds. And so they just rush in and they just grab them by their legs and throw them into um, these crates, which then once each crate is full, it's just shoved onto onto this truck, this special truck. And we can only imagine, right? The fear, the terror, the pain, all of it, the chaos, and um, uh, so you asked what a day would be like. So the typical day is the day before that, where they're just in the dark, trying to do whatever they can do to be birds. If they ever see sunshine, it's on that trip to the to the um, to the slaughterhouse on that truck because they're open 
And, uh, and then at the slaughterhouse, uh, they're grabbed one by one by the legs. They're hung up by the legs, dipped into a, an electrified bath that paralyzes them but doesn't kill them. So they're conscious when their neck is slit. And that's, I mean, yeah, there's a lot there to think about just listening to you to try and imagine being one of those birds in that situation, a body that's too heavy to carry friends that are as scared as you are in a space that's completely dark, uh, ammonia that's blinding you. So not only is it dark, but your vision is is dwindling. Um, the smell must be out of this world. Food you can't reach. Uh, just a sense of anxiety. That's just listening to that. I can only imagine the sense of anxiety that it must, that experience, that life must entail. And then to just have those lights, yeah, just the chaos, the terror. I think that really does bring to the fore the discomfort of thinking about this. And there is something powerful in hearing you say it because it is so every day on these farms. You, you mentioned earlier. Uh, how many birds in the U.S. are killed? I don't. I don't. I, I'm not up to date on the whole U.S. I was talking about just this little peninsula that I lived on, where they killed and cut up more than a million each day. I mean, so so to think. So then that was when I'm imagining that story. You were saying, I was trying to imagine myself as, and 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 this is obviously quite a different experience to to a hen who's expected to to lay eggs. Mm. I'm assuming these these are these are chickens that are raised to be yes, this eaten. Is, um, right. But yeah, so I'm standing there just imagining this one experience. But then you try and you know extrapolate that out to a million birds on a small farm experiencing that sense of anxiety and fear. It's it's really quite um, it's a lot to contend with, and it's not my life. It's not what I'm experiencing, and then that really does force some difficult questions. And, and not so difficult answers, I think, sometimes. Yeah. How, how would that compare to the lives of chickens on the sanctuary? What, what, is a, what do their lives look like at the sanctuary? How do they experience life there? We, we started as a chicken sanctuary. And now, uh, now there are, as well as chickens, uh, cows and goats and sheep and ducks and geese and turkeys and guinea fowl and emus and uh, one pig. I'm sure I'm forgetting other people. But for the birds, we decided when we first started that our motto would be let birds be birds. Because so many people, they, they, they don't treat chickens as if they were birds, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's this interesting mental thing, and and they are birds. They're descended from um, the jungle fowl of South Asia, who still exist in feral flocks. They actually chickens uh, go feral as easily as cats. Those who are not as genetically harmed as those big white birds who are used by the meat industry uh, really readily go feral, and uh, you'll find uh, uh, flocks. Uh, who have escaped from cockfighting in in several parts of the U.S. and around the world. Um, And they are genetically indistinguishable from their wild kin. So they really are. They're birds. Mm. Birds with all the wishes that other birds have. And uh, so we uh, always open each, the coops, doors um, at sunrise. And, and we don't close them until sunset. 
So that's different right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a number of, of, of coops, each of which is uh, adjacent to a spacious area for foraging. In one part of the sanctuary, there are just a few large yards. The other part of the sanctuary where the birds are with the... Um, or with the cows and sheep, there's even larger areas. Um, they all have access to the woods or to trees, and uh, there's always a mix of uh, some some bare area, some uh, some weedy area, some bushy area, and some trees. And so, as long weather permitting, uh, they'll be just out doing their thing. <clears throat> uh, we put out fresh food and water uh, first thing in the morning and check everything uh, to make sure that nobody needs more. Uh, refresh the waters every every afternoon. Sometimes it's more over a long summer day. We'll be out there several times over a short day. Then we have to worry about freezing. They have various uh, indoor and indoor-outdoor areas they can use. But this doesn't give you... I want to talk about individuals because I'm not sure that this... This gives a good idea. But basically what happens is uh, everybody is, each bird is has a community. Uh, that community might be just chickens. That community uh, might be chickens and cows. It might be, there are quite a few birds who in the winter like to take rides on the sheep so they don't have to walk in the snow. As um, in they stand on the sheep's back? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the sheep walk, and they just take a ride. What, what, do, what do they? What do they do? Um, so maybe tell us a story about an individual who who you know, and and a story we we could relate to in thinking about them beyond things in a yeah, factory. A typical day. Yes. Yes. Um, well, I'll tell you why. Why I wanted to talk about survivors. I was thinking about some of the. The earliest birds we uh, took in, the first I mentioned to you, and he uh, was shortly thereafter, There were uh, he was Victor, and the, the next two were Violet and Chickweed, uh, who had come from the same factory farm and who, would, who, they were the first ones I ever saw do that thing where these, these they're big, but they're still babies, right? They're uh, because of the accelerated growth. And so to see the two of them like alternate between who was going to be the brave one and who was going to put their head under the other one's wing uh, was just heartbreaking. Um, and it was also heart heartwarming and breaking at the same time to see Victor, who was really only a few months older than them, see them and be like, oh, I guess I'm a single parent now and try to figure out what in the world uh, he was supposed to do, given that he had not been raised by a mother. This was life-changing for me to experience. Uh, But the next three we called the Wild Bunch, Rosa, Che, and um, Fidel. And they had been, they were, so far as we could tell, escapees from what they call a, quote, broiler breeder facility. So these are the birds who aren't, who are of that kind, but they aren't killed for meat. They're used to breed the next, to breed the, the birds who will be killed for meat. And so they, they stay in very similar circumstances, uh, just big, big windowless sheds. Um, but there. There is uh, 
an effort made because uh, of both the feed cost and longevity to keep the roosters from eating a lot. Um, and so there are various barbarous ways uh, that they that they manage to give the hens more food um, and keep the roosters half starved. But the three of them ended up in a in a backyard after either escaping from a farm or jumping off a truck. They they do get killed eventually for meat. And when Miriam and I went to uh, get them at the behest of the of the homeowner, we brought some crates, some like dog crates. Uh, to carry the birds home in, and and we pretty quickly were able to pick up Rosa and Che and 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 Fidel, and the third bird who we weren't yet calling Che, uh, uh, he was he was clearly clearly you know terrified of us. Right here we were coming to grab them up and take them somewhere uh, when they had just got free, uh, so he was terrified. Um, but he also was determined that he wasn't going to leave the other two. And so those two were in crates and he just kept evading us. But then every time he would evade us, rather than like disappearing into the distance, he would come back to the crates to try and free the other two. Um, and that was finally how we got him because he kept coming back. And I'll just never forget the sight of him uh, uh, panting with panic. Um, his his comb flapping in the breeze like a flag as he stood there before the the, 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 the two crates, like he just wasn't going to desert them. Did they end up being happy? Did you see what what does what does happy chicken behavior uh, look like? Yeah. Yeah, they did. Um, it was really something those three, those ones, because uh, so Che loved Rosa, and then and then and then Victor fell in love with Rosa, and they both loved Rosa so much. And Rosa was just like this scraggly. I loved her too. I was in love with Rosa too, and and so like all of us like adored this raggedy bird. Um, there was just something about her. Uh, so were they happy? Yes. And what does a ha- so were they happy? And what does a happy chicken look like? So I would say, yes, um, they had happiness. Um, one tragic thing for those of us who run sanctuaries is that those particular birds, those big white birds who are used um, by the meat industry um, in the U.S., the farmers, they call them broiler chickens or roaster chickens. Uh, the technical name is Cornish Cross. Um, I just call them big white birds. And they, because of their accelerated growth and because of their uh, giant sized bodies on a regular sized skeleton with regular sized internal organs, um, tend not to live very long. They're lucky to live a year. And so our goal with them so for all of the chickens, our goal is let birds be birds, give them opportunities to just be in flocks, foraging, spending the day in a way that's as close as possible to the way that their wild kin would, would do, uh, forming relationships, organizing their own communities, sorting out their own difficulties. Uh, but with those big white birds, we have an additional goal, which is to, to, to make every day as happy as possible because we just don't know how long they're going to live and how many days they're going to have. 
Uh, so that must be really hard at the is. sanctuary. It must be really hard to see animals, to love animals, to see them have right. survived, to see them survive, and then and then to also see the pain. So it's not as though these animals leave a factory farm or escape a factory farm, and they are now free of the factory farm um, in both the way their bodies have been constituted and and the way they experience the world. Yeah. Those those experiences stay with them? In many cases, yes. I mean, even, uh, so we started taking in birds from egg factories in part because another bird rescuer suggested to us that it would be a little bit less heartbreaking to also take in some birds who didn't die so often or are mm-hmm. so young. And uh, they, those, those hens, uh, the suffering that they endure is almost beyond imagining, but they do recover emotionally uh they have a longer time and they recover emotionally most of the time and have oh my gosh there's this one egg factory survivor uh here right now called daffodil um she's been here for years and years and years since she was uh rescued from an egg factory and she just um is the boldest and most self-possessed person that almost I've ever known. She's, she's lived in each of the different coops. She just decides after a time that she's bored with one community and then she goes over and, and, and lives in another one. And whichever community she's in, she's the boss. And uh, it, I just love her so much. Uh, so, uh, but even they, even they, when they recover, remember they're mostly they're usually debeaked, which is the um, when they're chicks because they're going to be going into those hyper crowded situations. They burn the tips of their beaks off, um, and these are sensory organs for birds. Mm. And people don't realize that because they look hard, but there's all kinds of of sensory nerves at the tips of beaks. They're they're really important sensory organs as well as um, eating tools, and so. Uh, not only does the debeaking itself hurt at the time, but for many, and you can see it, it, it's, it's, it, it's done in such a way that you can see that it's still burned back so far that, you know, they must be experiencing perpetual pain. Yeah. It's, you've, you've brought so many things to, to the fore for me in, in, in thinking through this, you know, one, that there are many different types of chickens. I think we've maybe got a, a very, I spoke to Jonathan Belcom about fish or fishes, mm-hmm. and he mentioned, you know, we've got, you know, a very simple idea about the variety of fish mm-hmm. that exist mm-hmm. in the world, and mm-hmm. possibly also when it comes to to chickens and the not only types as in breeds, but mm-hmm. also places and and that and that they're also broiled. And sorry, it's maybe a bad word, but they're also caught up in a variety of different industries in, in very different ways. Absolutely. Uh, so and people don't even realize they're also um, victims of vivisection. A lot of animal uh, testing is done on, on birds. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's incredible to, to think through and maybe disrupt kind of the, the basic idea we have of, you know, it's not as though you have one chicken and this is the experience a chicken has. It's, it's dependent on who that chicken is, where that chicken has been brought up in. Um, I mean, we've spoken mainly now about how chickens are raised in in the U.S. and, and I assume in, through much of North America, but that there are different different ways in which chickens are also and, and raised, as you said, is a problematic word. And, and I'll never forget, I was traveling through um, 
Vietnam uh, on my bicycle. And when you're traveling on bicycle, it gives you an opportunity to see places in a very slow and different way. And we encountered a lot of chickens on the road, a lot of chickens, uh, you know, in people's backyards and running around villages. And they looked substantially different to to the big white birds you're mm. speaking of here. They were beautiful, tall, slender, muscular um animals who who seemed to have a, a sense of purpose, who seemed to, you know, walk across the streets and they were definitely getting in all sorts of um, kerfuffles and, you know, flapping their wings at one another. And then I think about that when versus the chickens who I saw when cycling through a city near a market who are in cages and their wings are pinned to their sides and there are numerous chickens in one cage being being mm-hmm. sold. So it's, yeah, just what you're bringing here forward to me is one to just complicate the, and, and to think about how diverse the chickens, chickens' lives can be across different places in the world, but that their experience as, as both victims and as survivors is not just emotional and what they feel with anxiety, but it is impressed on the way their body is made. And I use the word made because in these industries you're talking about, it is, it's, it's a manufactured body and it's a body that they live with which must be really hard. Um, but then you then you bring them joy in the sanctuary. It's amazing. Uh, the, the work you do, uh, You is, is the pig is Valkyrie, right? Yes, 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 Valkyrie. yes, she is. Yes, she is Valkyrie. <laughs> it's a great name. And I've got to say, um, the names you give are really exceptional, exceptional names, I'm assuming, for exceptional, exceptional beings. And no, we do try. It sounds like an, an amazing place. It just sounds like an absolutely amazing place where you've got cows and, and emus. Um, it's it's And I love that these different animals form relationships with one another, that they connect across species lines. Um, it, it really is beautiful that that you're able to see animals for more than victims, um, for more than just food or items. So thank you so much for, for the work you do. Well, thank you. And it's, it's very, I mean, it's extraordinarily rewarding. I was, I was thinking about a, when I was thinking about the experiences, I know we focused on chickens, but of course there are others here. And uh, when I think about dairy farms, of course, um, I just think about the deep, deep, deep mourning of, of the cows um, and uh, who have had so many calves taken from them um, while having their bodies violated every day. And, and so often when they come here, they're, um, if they're lucky to come here, uh, they may, they may be sunk into the depression or they may be, um, or they may be, uh, fighters. And that's why the, why the dairy was getting rid of them. Uh, uh, but it usually takes a while for, you know, some recovery to happen and for us to be able to witness the ways that the healing occurs, uh, is really remarkable for us. So the first two cows who came here from dairies uh, were Autumn and Rose. Autumn uh, was uh, like, when she looked you in the eye, she was just like, I, I don't know, are we allowed to say curse words on podcasts? Um, I'll go for it. <laughs> I mean, really, she just looked, looked you in the eye like, fuck you, what are you going to do to me? But uh, to see her uh, have that that spark turn from a spark of rebellion to just a spark of joy. She's she's really old now, and when the cows get to romping in the yard, she can't in the, around the pasture with joy. She can't always romp with them, but I've actually seen her dancing circles around a tree. 
um, while the others are romping through the pastures. She also had the opportunity to adopt a calf who came here, uh, Gemini. She just decided he was hers. She had had nine calves taken from her at the dairy that she was at. Never had the chance uh, to raise one. Um, and How then she's, oh my gosh, at least 16. Wow. Because that's something we don't often get to see or think of is an older, yeah. an older, I mean, I think we, we know and we care deeply for older dogs and older cats. We, we, we maybe have a sense of what older animals, you know, older cats and dogs look like. And we love and adore them and we appreciate them. But I don't think, I, I saw the work of a photographer, I think it must have been two years ago, who did document like photography of older yes. farmed animals. And yes, it's just so. beautiful. Um. Yeah, so that's 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 really a joy to see, um, and and uh, her companion Rose, when she first came, uh, we thought she was she seemed so shy in comparison to Autumn, that we just thought she was like a retiring shy personality. But it turned out that she had just been depressed and understandably so, uh, and it was about six months or more that she was here before she, her personality just suddenly emerged. And she turns out to be a practical joker. And <laughs> she turns out to be like the two of them are like the co-leaders of the special needs herd. And Autumn's sort of like the boss, whereas Rose is the one who like takes care of everybody and makes sure that everybody's emotional needs are met. Um, it's just really, really lovely to see. Yeah, I, we had a, a Katie, Katie Gillespie, Catherine mm -hmm. Gillespie on earlier season and and she a word she spoke about which i think is really something that you're hinting at here is she spoke about intimate geographies there, mm -hmm. there's something about spending a substantial amount of time with another being and seeing that the the, the animal who first arrived mm -hmm. rose autumn and how change over time how how you know we all change over time i'm not who i was when i was 21 and i'm not probably who i was two years ago um and that as you know, as as animals have gone through something really hard, you give them the space to to figure it out in their own ways, uh, and and yeah, and the time. I think that's maybe the really critical thing here as well is time to just figure it out, um, to be happy or to to find joy. That's really. I, I love the idea of romping. I love the the use of the word romping earlier. I could just oh, actually yes. imagine. Well, people don't realize how extraordinarily sociable and friendly cows tend to be. And so one of the things that happens here is that when um, someone new is coming and they know that someone new is coming because the trailer that is only ever used to bring someone um, comes rumbling up the driveway, uh, the cows get so excited and the thing that's so striking to me is they just, they presume this is going to be a new friend right? Sight unseen. They're excited. They want to meet this new person and they want, and, 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 and so then out comes the new person and it might be a goat. It might be a sheep. It might be a cow and they're following them around and showing them around, but then they're just so happy and excited that they start running figure eights around the pasture, kicking their heels up in the air because they're just so happy to have a new friend. Um, it's just um, a wonderful thing to see. And the yeah, same because cows are 
huge. Cows are really yes. big. Yes. Uh, the, the first yes. time I stood near a cow, because, you know, I've, I grew up in the city. I've, I've never really had close encounters with, with um, cows. And the first time I stood near one, her hip bones were almost taller than I was. And, mm-hmm. and then to see an animal who's that large jumping, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of a cow jumped over the moon, I get mm-hmm. it now. I'm like, mm-hmm. yes, cows jump um, mm-hmm. and they're so agile. There was this um, fantastic video of a cow playing soccer. I think it was in Sweden um, where – and they're just so, it's, you can just see they're happy. They do romp. Romp is the, the best word. <laughs> right. And that's not to say that they don't, um, that everyone, look, it's just as, as, I'm not saying it's identical to people because we're all different kinds of animals, but in the same way that we vary considerably in the degree to which we recover from trauma or carry it around with us. Um, sometimes we never, we can go on and have a happy and, uh, mostly happy and fulfilling life, but we're still carrying around some trauma. Um, so I'm thinking of this cow called Jan, um, who I wanted to, um, oh, and, and that is not a name we chose. Uh, she and her, um, her son came here with names given by their original rescuers. Uh, but she had been at a, um, a small scale slaughter on site beef farm. So she had, um, she had actually, you know, witnessed uh, her uh, companions being slaughtered. And she uh, was, I think we, we presume she was used to breed the cows. Uh, Cause she, she, what, what she did was she jumped the beef farm fence pregnant um, and gave Ooh. birth to her calf in the woods and then found her way uh, to someone who then got her to farm sanctuary, uh, who couldn't keep her because they have so many tours and she would charge anybody who even looked twice at her calf, Justin. Uh, we have a large back pasture where, um, uh, hardly anybody, we go twice a day to count the cows, make sure everybody's okay, put out hay and water, but they conduct their own affairs otherwise. And so, uh, she would fit in right find there she came and and it was uh, a little scary uh when she would look at you and you just didn't make eye contact or even look other than like out of the corner of your eye at her calf because she was so protective of him um it it took quite a while and him growing up for her to be uh more relaxed which she is now it's been years now but the funny thing is that uh her son justin who's the sweetest dear heart and is uh loves to watch birds uh he's bigger than she is now but even so if we go back there with someone she doesn't know you'll see that she starts to give you that look and then she goes like she's going to protect him um that's yeah even though he's like twice her size now it's pretty and it's i love that you're able to read because we do know that and and you know we see it when uh, so i've got a doggo linus and when he meets another doggo there's a, a moment of tension where i i can read what's going on and i might read it wrong sometimes but i can read that okay this is either going to go pear-shaped or it's going to turn into play and there's this like the split second moment where i'm not too sure which way it's going to which way it's going to go. Um, and and it's it's incredible that if we just spend some time with a particular being that we can learn that that's a, hey, back off, or that's an invitation, and that with some time and some attention, we might actually learn what they're experiencing, but also what they are trying to actively communicate to us. 
Um, and something you've mentioned a couple of times with both the chickens and and the cows is the power of also letting them be and figure out figuring out their own business, their own fights, their own space, their own politics, um, giving them the, the space so that we're not the overlords all the time. And, and I know that must be complicated. But anyway, believe it or not, we've, we've been speaking for, for just over an hour already. I think mm. I could listen to these stories for, for days and days. Um, but we're heading towards the end now. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to read the, the quote that you got ready. Well, I chose something a little longer that I wanted, um, but I think you will appreciate now that we've had this far of the conversation because it, it gives a, it's something that I wrote. It's the introduction to a, an essay that I wrote for a, a queer studies journal uh, on the occasion of the Stonewall anniversary. So I'm just going to mm-hmm. read this. And um, if you or your listeners, I, I would like you to try and visualize what I'm saying. And, you know, some people like to close their eyes. Some people like to stare off into space. I don't know what you like to do, but if you could try and visualize this, I think it's the best. Okay. 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 Here we go. I live in an enchanted forest in the hundred acre wood occupied by the denizens of vine sanctuary, an animal refuge established by LGBTQ people, beech trees synchronize their photosynthesis so that all may share the sugar. Flying squirrels nest with birds in the cavities of hollow trees and might stick their heads out to see who's there if you come knocking at dusk. Wild turkey hens collaboratively raise their young, sometimes taking them on walks to visit Pete and Repeat, two captive bored toms who share a coop with chickens. In the wooded back pastures, a cow who rescued herself and her calf from a beef farm mingles with dozens of similarly self-possessed bovines. If you hike up to visit, their pheasant friend, who rewilded himself after being hatched to be hunted, might fly along beside you for a moment before returning to his own projects. Down at the duck pond, feral descendants of birds purchased at pet stores socialize with wild waterfowl. Back at the barn, sheep give rides to survivors of egg factories and a group of peacekeeping geese help with the project of rehabilitating roosters formerly used in cockfighting. Wow. Wow. So many, so many individuals, so many relationships, so many industries that, that have put them, that have created the circumstances that made it necessary for them to, to meet at the sanctuary. That was beautiful. Thank you. Um, and and are these all? Is this based on on animals at Vine? These oh yes, are... yes. I, I was describing um, where I live, um, and the, the 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 end of the essay reminds you that you live in an enchanted forest too, um, and that uh, there are somewhere near you are trees, and those trees are exhaling oxygen that you are breathing in. And those trees are connected to other trees via fungi through which they communicate in ways that you can't possibly imagine, but from which you benefit. Um, wow. Do you know what I really love about this and, and your use of the word enchanted is um, the very first episode when I spoke to Zipporah Weisberg, she kept saying to try and see the magic of being, to, mm. to see that it is it is beautiful, uh, our ability to to 
yeah, the ways we're, we're connected, the ways we experience, um, and not just we as humans, but as as animals, the the variety, the the connections we're able to make, it really is enchanted. It really is amazing. Um, yeah. Yes, the world Thank the world is, and 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 I mean that's the benefit, right? The the benefit of um, oh, and since this is an academic podcast, I would say uh, that you should, uh, if you want to read Val Plumwood, she'll talk about how important it is to reenchant the world uh, for everyone, and to uh, to do whatever you can to undermine the way of thinking that just sort of flattens all of nature into one thing as though like mountaintops and sea turtles were the same. Um, yeah. Uh, but I, I think that huh, the benefit of setting aside human hubris um, and rejoining uh, the, the community uh, in which we are in fact enmeshed, the multiplicity of interlooping and interacting ecosystems in which we participate um, is uh, is this is this ability to 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 see these connections and to experience the joy and the beauty, etc. To me, that's well worth the emotional toll of being a bit more honest with yourself about the relationships of harm in which you participate and figuring out ways to divest yourself um, as much as possible from such relationships. And, um, and that can entail, right. Some discomfort that can entail some, uh, what feels like giving up of things. Uh, But really what it does is it links you uh, back into this much more rich and satisfying uh, world that is that is here, if only we would see it. Oh, I think that's a great place to leave it. There is discomfort, but there is so much beauty, and the discomfort pales in comparison to the beauty if we were if we were just a acknowledge how we're embedded and and take responsibility for some of our actions therein. Thank you again so much for your time. Before I let you go, uh, if people are interested in learning more about the work you do, uh, both at the sanctuary and academically, perhaps you could tell us if there's anything you're working on now. Um, but if people want to find out more about you, where could they do that? Mm. Well, I'm always working on things for Vine Sanctuary, and you can find Vine Sanctuary at vinesanctuary.org or on Facebook as Vine Sanctuary, or on Twitter as Vine Sanctuary, or on Instagram as Vine Sanctuary. B-I-N-E, all caps. It's an acronym that stands for veganism is the next evolution, but also stands for veganism is not enough. I'm superstitious, so I can't tell you the creative things that I'm working on, but I am doing my best to carve out time to write some more things. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And uh, this, will be airing, this will be airing in January. And I hope that uh, people take up, if they're thinking about veganism, I hope that they take Veganuary as an opportunity to explore it. And 
and uh, and and heed some of what you've said here about imagining animals' experiences and taking those experiences seriously. So thank you once again for your time. It's been a it's been a pleasure listening to you and the stories of some of the animals' experiences at Vine. Thank you. Thank you once again to Patrice Jones for being an incredible guest, to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple, for sponsoring this podcast, to Gordon Clark for the bed music, and to Jeremy John for the logo. If you have some time or you have it in you to leave a review for the podcast, that would be really, really great. You can do it on any platform that you listen. I know sometimes it can be a bit tricky to find out where or how to do it. So you're welcome to also leave a review on Podchaser. Uh, a website some people are calling the IMBD of podcasts. There are tons of really great podcasts available on the website, uh, and it's pretty it's a pretty neat way to also organize your listening. So uh, if you haven't checked it out yet, and this is a not sponsored message, uh, I'm just really quite enamored with the website. I've got to say. Um, so yeah, if you if you have some time to leave a review, that would be really great. The next episode is going to be the final episode of the season. Yay! And as always, I'm trying to finish the season off with a grad review. So I'm going to be joined by some other graduate students. And we're going to be discussing and unpacking some of the main themes and tensions that have emerged from season two, as well as some of the gaps. Uh, what what didn't we discuss? What should there have been more of or less of? Uh, so it should be a really good conversation. And I hope you'll be able to join us then too. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hertzenfelder. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!